0: Welcome to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Julia Kramer, and I am here as the host of Tess Kitchen Talk. Joining me today in our podcast studio is Senior Food Editor, Allison Roman. Hello, Julia. Hi, Allison. Happy to be here. I'm so glad. Today, we are talking about preserving. Now, it feels like uh, everyone these days is making their own jam, but... I happen to know that, Allison, you were kind of like the original weird jam lady at the farmer's market. Is that right?
1: In in my own social circle, the original, yes, for sure. Definitely people had been doing it before me, (laughs) but I did. I had a little jam company for a while.
0: And where was that?
1: It was here in Brooklyn. Um, I sold at Smorgasburg and Brooklyn Flea and then, you know, like Bedford Cheese Shop and some other stores around, you know,
0: Brooklyn. And how did you know how to make jam?
1: I learned how to make jam from a few books and also I was a pastry chef for a long time. And working in a pastry kitchen, you're oftentimes flooded with an excess of fruits. And so, you know, if you had extra time on your hands between service, you know, you'd throw on a pot of jam. That was sort of what you did. So you Hmm. learn the ins and the outs. Hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. And what kind of flavors did you sell at the market?
1: We sold mostly uh, marmalades to begin with because it was a business that uh, my friend and I started in the wintertime. So we did blood orange, campari, marmalade, uh, lemon, and vanilla bean, and then a orange and bourbon. So now how many years ago was that? This was, uh,
0: gosh, five years ago, six maybe, five Five and and a half. Okay, so five or six years later, you wrote this beautiful story about preserving. It's in the August issue of Bon Appetit. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm just going to be honest to our listeners. Everything in this story terrifies me.
1: It's scary stuff, Julia.
0: Preserving, yeah, seems like a great way to give all your friends botulism.
1: Very hard to contract, actually, these days. (laughs) I promise you. You'd so, have to actually try to get it in order to do so. <laughs> it's it's harder than you think, I, I swear.
0: But talk to me. Tell an idiot like me who is scared of
1: all this stuff, where do I start? Okay, well, so this story we actually developed last year and shot last year on location in this beautiful place up in Pennsylvania. And when we were deciding what kind of preserving story we wanted to do, we realized that it wasn't, it shouldn't be about canning because that's like boring, right? So I wanted to create a preserving story for people that, you know, like you, that are maybe a little nervous, that sort of have um, a bounty, if you will, of produce or herbs, things like that. And just don't know what to do with them all, aside from freezing them or throwing them into a pesto. What else can I do? How can I make this last a little longer? So a lot of these techniques are not only super easy to do, they require very little effort, which I'm a huge fan of, actually. I'm, I'm a pretty lazy preserver, if if we're being honest. And I feel like this is a safe space.
0: This is a safe space. Um, yeah, I noticed your first piece of advice in this story was to take a bunch of herbs, tie them with a string, and just hang them up. Yeah,
1: Doesn't get lazier than that, my friends. But also totally rewarding because it's the kind of thing that looks really beautiful. It is head and shoulders above anything you can buy in the store. It really, really is.
0: So how long does it take for those herbs to dry once you've hung them up?
1: Um, It kind of varies because each herb has a different uh, water content. But I'd say on average three to five days.
0: Okay. And then once they're dry,
1: what do you do with them besides, you know, make a Bouquet or something? No, we're not making bouquets here. This is a preserving story, <laughs> not a wedding story, Juliet. I don't
0: want to eat these like dry, weird herbs that have just been like hanging in my kitchen all week.
1: Well, we're not just like drying these bouquets and then eating them. That's not how this is going down. We're going to strip them from the stock. We're going to uh, put them in beautiful jars and keep them on our pristine shelves in our kitchen. Or we're going to turn them into stuff like herb salt or you know, lemon verbena sugar. So herb salt is one of my favorite things to do with dried herbs because salt acts as a preservative as well. So it'll retain a lot of the essential oils a lot better than if you were to just store the herbs in a jar. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you can use that salt on things like when you're grilling lamb or even steak, vegetables, throw it on when you're roasting things. It's awesome on potatoes. Sort of any time you'd want herbs plus salt, which is quite often, um, you kind of have it all ready to go for you.
0: And how long can you keep that herb salt around?
1: I've had herb salt that I've kept around, you know, I'd say six months is really pushing it. I don't ever make it where it lasts that long. I like to make it in smaller batches to Mm -hmm. keep it fresher. Um, But you can keep it around for quite a while. Interesting. So
0: another very simple idea that appealed to me from this story was Plum wine. Mm. Essentially, if I read this recipe right, the instructions are: you put plums and vodka in a jar, and you just leave it there and see what happens. Is that
1: is that right? It's like totally my kind of party. It's like a Japanese thing. I went to this woman's house, Hiroko Shimbo, and she greeted us at her house with plum wine, and I was like, "Oh my god, plum wine!" I just liked the sound of it. I didn't know even what it was or what was in it, but I knew I wanted to make it. And then I asked her, and it basically is a clear spirit, high-proof spirit, and plums. And you don't have to pit them. You don't have to cut them. You just put them in a jar, layer it with sugar, cover it with booze, let it do its thing. And so what happens is the fruit kind of starts to ferment, and and this is why it takes so long. And over time, it kind of breaks down. The sugar plus the natural sugars help it do its thing. And what you're left with is like this totally crazy-tasting, almost sherry-like, oxidized, awesome plum wine.
0: <laughs> and you you eat the plums at the end or no, you
1: take them out? you take them out. They're kind of like, you know, when you make stock and you got mm-hmm. those carrots and celery, you don't really want to eat them. All the good stuff is in the liquid.
0: I see. I see. Well, that sounds delicious. It's yeah. sort of like uh, artisanal.
1: Moonshine? It's basically moonshine. I basically just opened up a bathtub gin situation in the test kitchen and started (laughs) churning these out. And I still have some at my house from like three summers ago. I've got plum wine. I've got bachelor's gym. I've got, it's a very weird situation in my refrigerator right now, Um, but I'm working my way through. All those things.
0: Yeah. Well, little did people know that if they're looking for recipes for moonshine, mm-hmm. Bone Appetit magazine. Yeah. Well, that's, I
1: mean, yeah. And the first time I made this, it was because I went to the farmer's market and somebody was selling kind of old, not great looking plums, but they were so tiny and cute. I had to have them and was thinking to myself, what can I do with them? That's not jam. And they weren't so great for eating out of hand, but I was like, if there was a time for making plum wine, this is it.
0: Okay. So we covered the 101, drying herbs, making plum wine. Mm-hmm. Where do we go from there? What's the next step to becoming Alison Roman?
1: <laughs> it's a long road, Julia, but I'd say making pickles is a good place to start. Pickling is not as hard or scary as you think. This kind of pickling that we're talking about right now is the crunchy, tangy, vinegary type of pickle. We're not talking fermentation just yet. So... You know, I feel like we've done the hard work for you. We've given you a really awesome, great all-purpose brine. And that has distilled white vinegar, kosher salt, sugar, and then kind of up to you. A little bit of spice, a little bit of herb, whatever. But as long as you have the right ratio of the vinegar to salt to sugar to water, you're going to be all set. And this is like a great all-purpose brine for most vegetables. What is pickling in your refrigerator right now? You know, I like my pizza. Like, my pickle's very classic I'm pretty boring. <laughs> I really wasn't sure where you were going with that. I, well, I, I try and weave in a pizza reference at any given opportunity, but I fermented some. I found some really beautiful, perfectly-sized pickling Kirby cucumbers at the market and busted out a, the old crock and went for, like, garlic dill, and they're nice. delicious.
0: Sounds great. So good. Yeah. So moving on. There's so much jam out there,
1: Yeah,
0: a million artisanal jams, yeah. and yet you prefer to make your own.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, also funny because I had a jam company, so I suggested that other people not make their own. But let me do that for you. I like to do it myself. I find that um, there are a few jam companies out there and people making jam where I will always buy because I know the kind of fruit they're getting. I like the way that they make jam. It's not too sweet. They're using interesting flavor combinations. Um, So making it
0: yourself, you get to decide how sweet is it, Yeah. how acidic is it. Exactly.
1: And I like my jam fairly acidic, kind of on the runnier side. You know, I want it to taste just like the fruit. I Hmm. don't want it to taste like sugar. What's the difference between jam and jelly? Jam is uh, made with whole fruit. You're kind of using the whole thing. Jelly is something that has been strained out. If you'll notice, jelly is always clear. It's because you're using a fine mess strainer to, like, remove the seeds, remove the pulp, and what you're left with is, like, a clear, just kind of generally sweet, fruity liquid that is set that you can spread on stuff.
0: So speaking of the farmer's market, one thing I've noticed now that I live in Brooklyn... Right, the heart of it. Belly every, of the beast. Everyone is just, you know, growing beards and working on their jams. Um, When I go to the <laughs> farmer's market, I hear these people going up to the farmers, oh, do you have any bruised tomatoes? Do you have any, um, you know, bruised It's like the peaches? name of my
1: cover band, <laughs> bruised tomatoes. <laughs> but, like, this is, a, this is a good thing to do if yeah. you... I mean, yeah, so there's a common misconception that bruised fruit will make better jam, and that's actually not true. Hmm. Because if this were a television show, I'd be drawing a graph right now showing you the pectin content of a piece of fruit and how it ages. It does actually hit peak pectin, and we can talk about that in a second. But... Fruit does have like an ideal time in its life where the golden years, it's ready for jam. It has a lot of pectin. It has a lot of acid, the perfect amount of sugar. And as it ages um, and gets kind of overly ripe, you've got an imbalance of sugar to acid. The pectin kind of starts to break down. So you can definitely turn these into whatever you want, but they're not actually ideal. Things like tomatoes, though, I find perfectly fine. You know, if they're overly ripe, if they're bruised, if they've gotten a little squished, it's totally fine.
0: So let's back up a minute. What is pectin?
1: Pectin is a gelling agent, and that is what is uh, what allows your jams to set. And by set, I mean uh, not be a syrup. So you know, you notice when you're smearing your jelly on your sandwich, it holds its shape. It's something spreadable, smearable, not like a juice, right? Mm-hmm. So pectin is naturally occurring in many fruits. Um, it's found in green apples. Its citrus is very present. Um, It's lower in things like berries and stone fruit, but it it does exist. I personally don't like adding pectin. You can buy it in powdered form. Um, But I kind of like letting the natural – I like if my jam's a little loose because the fruit has less pectin, I'm okay with that.
0: Yeah, let your jam be what it wants to be. Yeah,
1: I'm not trying to put anyone in a box.
0: Okay, you've got your consistency in mind that you're going for with your jam. Mm -hmm. How do you know when it's done?
1: Well, it took me um, quite a while Uh, a lot of batches of jam to know what to look for. But basically you kind of want to, when you're cooking your jam, you're going to notice that the bubbles are going to move a little bit slower. They're going to be a little bit larger. It's just going to look thicker. You're going to notice that there's not that separation of fruit and water. It's going to kind of all come together. It's kind of like if you've ever made tomato sauce or marinara, you know, you start with your canned tomatoes and you have your tomato and like the liquid that the tomatoes are in. Once it becomes kind of all cooked together. You've got this awesome, nice, thick sauce. That's kind of what you're going for when you're doing jam. A great way to tell is by taking a cold plate, you can keep that in your refrigerator or the freezer, spooning a little bit of jam onto it and then dragging your spoon or your finger through it and seeing if it runs or splits or, you know, how it sets up.
0: All right. Well, that doesn't sound too complicated. No. And you know,
1: if your jam is a little runnier or a little firmer, it's not the end of the world. Yeah. Pour it on ice cream. You know what? Put it on ice cream. Put it on your pancakes. <laughs> Eat it out of the jar. I don't care. It's going to be great.
0: <sighs> okay. So it seems to me the most intimidating technique in this story is fermenting.
1: You're not wrong. That is definitely like, if we're talking 101, 102, this is like 501. Wow. But, but also, sort of, again, like, not that hard. You really only need salt. It's very well, basic. maybe a jar. Yeah, uh, a jar. Or a crock, if you're feeling
0: fancy. Now, what is great about a crock? Why, what does a crock do that a
1: jar can't? Uh, most crocks, like the one I've got, is ceramic, which means it's breathable. So you're getting... You are getting, like, an airflow in it, but it also doesn't hold on to odors. You can make large batches of it. I can keep it in my small Brooklyn apartment, and it doesn't make my entire house smell like kimchi, except when I open it, and then it totally does. But I just don't have anyone over, like, for a few days. (laughs) Um,
0: This page of the magazine, it's great for people who live alone. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Fermenting for one. (laughs)
0: Um, So kimchi, is that... Is that sort of what you would recommend that people, first-time fermenters, start with?
1: Yes. And the reason I like that is because you're not messing around with a brine. And in order to ferment properly, you really do need the exact amount of salt to water. But kimchi, okay, so the reason I like this method is because cabbage has so much water in it naturally that you can sprinkle your salt onto the kimchi, massage it, massage the living daylights out of it, and Mm. all of this water will come out of the cabbage, thus creating its own brine in which to submerge. You need to ferment in a anaerobic environment, which means something without oxygen, right? So that's why it needs to be submerged by a brine. So instead of creating one and wondering if you've got the right salt to water balance, you're just sort of creating your own liquid.
0: So you don't add water?
1: No. Not with kimchi.
0: Cabbage creates its own water.
1: Yeah, which is why, you know, kimchi and sauerkraut have been around for a gajillion years, and it's a great way to preserve stuff. They didn't need any extra water. They created their own brine. It's super easy. It's fast, and it's relatively foolproof. And what do you like to do with kimchi once you have it on hand? Oh, my God. What don't I like to do with kimchi? I am a kimchi monster, Julia. I can't get enough. If it's on a menu, I'll order it. And if it's not on the menu at the restaurant I'm at, I'm going to go home and I'm going to eat the one that I made myself. I You're going to bring your it.
0: leftovers home from the restaurant I, and oh put my kimchi God, on it? I
1: do. I do that.
0: All right. So it turns out you can put kimchi on anything. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, Allison. You're welcome. This has been a very educational segment like to round it out with a little lightning round if you're ready for that
1: i've never been more ready
0: okay the question is will
1: it pickle (gasps) quinoa no i wouldn't i'm sure some somebody out there's like (laughs) i pickle quinoa all the time and it's great but like you're not asking them you're asking me and i say no fennel yes what would you pickle it with um, I like to do fennel and fennel seed because I think it's cute. Like fennel, pickled fennel. It sounds fun. Wow! Um, Avocado? No.
0: Corn? Yes. Strawberries? Yes.
1: Really? Yeah, especially green ones. They're kind of like a firmer strawberry. They're not ripe, so it's like a or – they're already kind of sour, so it, you know, feels natural. Carrots? Yeah. Eggs? Yeah. Beet pickled? Beet pickled, turmeric pickled, mustard pickled – Wow. Just like whatever pickled. I, I love eggs. I love pickles. I love pickled eggs. Same. Cauliflower? Yeah. Green beans? Definitely. Beef? No. Again, somebody definitely has. I'm not endorsing it. I believe we have a pickled beef tostada recipe. We do. And Danny Bowen made it, and it was delicious. But to me, it was more like marinated. Hmm. Okay. It wasn't quite pickled. Fair enough. Melon? Yeah. Melon rind, actually, specifically. I don't love pickled melon because there's so much water in it anyway that it has a difficult time absorbing the brine. And by the time it does, it gets kind of soft. And unless you have a cryovac machine, which is like definitely a whole other podcast. It's a different magazine, actually. (laughs) Um, But melon rind. um, Pickled watermelon rind, yeah. Yeah, delicious.
0: For someone who has never pickled anything, I I do enjoy pickles. (laughs)
1: Um, Chicken. No. Eggplant yes, but uh, not my fave. You can. I don't love it. It seems like it would have a weird texture. Yeah, again, I'm, I'm, I'd rather marinate it. Fair. Radishes. Yeah. They are funky, though. Just FYI. What? Daikon, breakfast, watermelon. You pickle a radish, and then you open that jar around somebody, they're going to be like, what is in that jar? And last, potatoes. Ah. Uh, ah. Uh. I have never tried, although in that in Al's Place, one of our, our – our number one restaurant in the country, as Wahoo. per the BA Hot 10, um, they brine their French fries, sort of like ferment them raw, like the potatoes raw, before they fry them. And they kind of have this awesome salt and vinegar quality to them. Um, but I've never – that's the first time I've ever seen anyone ferment or pickle a potato. Interesting. Yeah.
0: We'll have to try it to find out. Allison. Thank you very much for being on the show today. I think you might have persuaded me. I've got some eggs at home. I might <laughs> I might beat pickle them. That Who seems knows? like a a good entry level yeah. way to get going on this.
1: Go forth. Be wild. Pickle. Thanks again. Bye. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by executive producer Bell Cushing and project manager Carrie Polis with editing by Mitra Kaboli. The theme music is by Valerie and the Greedies. Tune in every Wednesday for a new episode on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.